The Tom Woods Show, episode 1807. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the astonishingly delicious Press House Coffee is the official coffee of The Tom Woods Show. Take 20% off your first order when you go to PressHouseCoffee.com and use promo code WOODS at checkout. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. Anthony Samaroff week continues. And today I want to get into the therapy angle of what Anthony does because I think he has some interesting psychological insights. And among them, we'll be talking about, for one thing, why maybe there are so few libertarians or what it is about a particular person that makes it likely that that person become a libertarian. What makes people become libertarians? What makes somebody take on a series of ideas that are frankly despised by almost everybody. I mean, there has to be some explanation why some people go down this road and others don't. Now, you could say, well, it's just because the force of the arguments are just overwhelming, but how come they don't overwhelm everybody? You know, that's really the question that I want to get answered. But there's, there's a lot more here because uh, a lot of people, and I think I want to talk about this first, you know, we think about freedom in terms of politics and freedom from the state. And I think from a libertarian perspective, that is the correct way to think about it. So the definitions aren't wrong here. But I think, nevertheless, when we think about freedom colloquially, we often think of freedom as simply living freely, living the kind of life you want to live without annoying constraints, whether political or otherwise. And I think a lot of libertarians, if they're being honest with themselves, will find that the things they really struggle with in their lives have nothing to do with the state. And they may not be external things at all. Having set it up that way, let's turn things to, over to Anthony Samaroff. Anthony, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Anthony Samaroff, week continues here. Now, today, we're going to talk about something completely unrelated. You've done really good work as a therapist, and somebody who's very close to me can attest to that. The results from working with you have been very, very good. So I want to frame the conversation this way. Every once in a while, people have heard me refer to a fellow named Harry Brown. Now, the long, long-time listeners and, and libertarians will know who he is. Some of the new folks may not know who Harry Brown was, but he was a presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party, extremely well-spoken, very smart, very successful, a very, very impressive person, period. And he wrote numerous books, but one of them is one I've referred to quite a few times, and that's How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World. And when you read that book, you find that there is a discussion of politics in it, but that that's not primarily what he's talking about. He's saying that if you want to find freedom, okay, you may not be able to pay zero taxes or have the kind of political freedom you may want, but that that's not the only way, at least colloquially, we should think about freedom. There are other constraints on our lives, some of which are self-imposed. And these constraints can be, you know, working in a job you absolutely can't stand or staying in an abusive relationship or whatever. There are things that we do to ourselves that, well, let's just say are comparable to what the state does. To right. The state is not the problem. With, with a lot of libertarians we meet, just because they're human beings like anybody else, their main problem is not that, you know, the, the crosswalk was placed in the wrong spot on the street by the government. I mean, that is not their main problem. A lot of their problems are self-imposed, or maybe self-imposed is too harsh. They're internal. The yes. problems that they face are internal rather than external. So there is a link, I think, 
in what you do and in the general overall philosophy of, of freedom? I mean, yes, political freedom is hard to come by and you can win victories here and there, but that's not the only thing that's, let's say, holding you back from flourishing. So let's talk about that. Now, I could imagine the average person looking at what you or other therapists do and thinking it's a whole bunch of uh, airy-fairy nonsense that uh, is unscientific and doesn't really accomplish anything. I mean, how do you answer that? Well, I mean, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, really. I mean, people attest that their life improves when they get the quality of understanding I, I guess one of, one of the things that I, I mean, as a therapist, I don't see my role as like diagnosing or curing or fixing people like a doctor does. That's very old school. It's not that fashionable anymore. Although there's some people who still practice like that. And if they're very skilled, they'll get results with people. What I see a lot that people really need is high quality attention. Easy for me to say. And I guess this is something that I maybe came into seeing as my role because maybe that's something that was missing from my life when that was growing up and often we end up giving something that we ourselves were desperately in need of. You need to actually have the experience of someone not just listening to understand you, but then being able to relay that back to you in a kind of way that makes you go, oh yeah, totally. That is that is totally it. That is totally how I feel. Sometimes if you're really on point, it'll be like, I didn't even realize that's how I felt until you pointed it out. And that, that that's a healing process for people. A lot of the people who say, oh, it's airy-fairy and things like that, um, a lot of the time there are people who could really, really benefit from it. They feel like they always have to do everything on their own and they're, they're working away and life's just hard and that's just what it's like. And maybe they even have wounding around that. It's painful that they didn't get that when they were growing up. And, and that's what made them feel like they have to do everything on their own. They have like the inverse of the wound, which is, you know, you could get wounded in one way where you feel like really needy for it. And that might not actually turn out to be a bad thing in the short term, because at least you know what you need. And the other, the other way is kind of the inverse to be like, oh, well, I don't need that. That might be for other people, but that's not for me or those people who need that, they're so squishy and sensitive, they're, they're not going to be able to cope with the real world or something like that. I guess that's how I answer to it. Now, there may be a lot of practitioners that won't be able to help them or, or people, or there may be even unskilled practitioners. But at the end of the day, people need to make choices. And, and sometimes you might not benefit from your own choices if you choose to forswear something that, that might be helpful to you. Luckily, there's only so many hours in the day and I don't have to try and help people who don't want to be helped. There's enough people who know that they have a need for the sort of thing that I do for me to cater to. Now, in the kind of work you do, would you say that as you're getting to know somebody, are you looking for patterns so that you say, ah, yes, this person has such and such disorder or, oh, I've seen this kind of denial many, many times. Or is it, entirely unique from one person to the next? Well, there are patterns, but again, I don't see my primary role as a diagnostician. What you're talking about in psychotherapy is called the psychodynamic approach to psychotherapy, which is like the descendant of Freud. You know, there's defense mechanisms, like you mentioned, denial, projection, and what have you. And I have trained in that. 
But I see that as very secondary, like to just having a real connection with the person and understanding where they're coming from, what it's like to experience the world as they do, what it's like to sit in their shoes. So they feel like I really understand them. That's the next thing. It's it's one thing to be able to listen to understand. It's a second skill to really be able to make that person feel like you understand where they're coming from by your feedback, by what you say back to them. And that, that's a skill you can get better and better at. And I have over time, because then you point out things that are just on the edge of their awareness. They wouldn't be able to articulate it themselves. But by listening between the lines, you pick it up. And if you can put it back to them or ask them a question about that or say, well, I mean, it seems like you might feel this way or point out little things that they've said that might contradict each other. It seems on one hand you said this, but on the other hand you said that. It might be that you're a bit ambivalent about that. Then, oh, they're becoming clear to themselves. To come back to your original question, too much theory and trying to intellectualize and see patterns and things like that can get in the way of you just being in the present moment and seeing exactly where they're coming from and what's in front of you. It can be useful later on once that connection is made and they feel deeply understood and connected to you, then you can bring in the theory and say, you know, well, you know, could it be because this happened in your childhood or could it be that this is a pattern because, you know, you've had three or four relations or is this something that you might not want to be looked at? But in my opinion and my experience, theory is good and it's useful, but it should always be second to forging a high quality relationship with the client. Just so people get a sense of what is possible, can you give examples, I mean, given that there are no names involved, I assume this isn't a problem, Hmm. of people who made real strides because you helped them realize things? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the kind of things that I'm most proud of is when I had people who felt like alienated from their family and things like that, they couldn't get any of the understanding that they needed, even as, you know, mature and adults and things like that. And over the course of therapy, they became very independent and got their lives together. And even parents who were previously hostile, like came around and saw, oh, wow, they're doing really well. And they're really capable and trusted their judgment more. So the the relationship with the parent also improved as well by them becoming more autonomous and more independent. And sometimes in a short time of like a year or two, where I might have been seeing them for periods during And, you know, almost in a way that sometimes I was like, wow, they're going at light speed. Like, I I, I wish it had been that easy for me to get the train on the tracks for myself. So when I see that kind of thing, that's really heartening. Also, you know, sometimes you see people who have had very adverse traumatic experiences. They've been badly mistreated and had violence conducted on them and things like that. And seeing them um, be able to let go of what, what I call the emotional memory of those events you know, you, you don't lose your factual memory. You you remember everything that happens to you, but you don't have so much um, emotion attached to it. So you're not oppressed in everyday life by the past. When stuff like that happens, like, yeah, I'm always really proud and, and really glad that I could have a hand in helping 
people heal from those kinds of things. I guess something you said a few minutes ago may have answered this, but I've always wondered a lot of people who really need help are in a situation where what they really need is to be fully honest with themselves about their situation. But if they're prepared to be that brutally honest, maybe they don't need you. And if they're not prepared to be that brutally honest, how can you help them? Right. Well, you know, there's an expression which is everyone has a back. And I like that because even if you're trying to be honest with yourself, you might be too close to it. And sometimes talking it out helps you see these things. And at other times, it might be useful to have someone challenge you in a gentle way and say, well, you know, you said this, but on the other hand, that, or you said this is important to you, but on the other hand, you're doing this, you know, can you comment on that? You, know, What do you think's going on there? You know, and in a way that's quite gentle, but also, oh yeah, like, and um, oh, I never saw it that way. And, and sometimes like, I don't like those forms of therapy where the, the therapist comes and says, you are this and, or you are like this or something like that. I always present it as a hypothesis. You know, could it be, because you're the authority on yourself. The client is the expert on themselves. I'm not the expert on them. My job is to help them bring out their own expertise. So when I say things like that they might not have noticed, or I have some theory you were talking about, you know, bringing in the psychological theories before that they might fit into could it be that this, and sometimes they'll be like, oh yeah, like, you know, they run with it and that helps them expand, that helps them see themselves better. And other times they're like, no, it's not that, but you having pointed that out helps them figure out what it is. No, I don't think it's that I'm angry about that. Actually, I feel like I'm guilty because this or that. So even it, when you offer it that way, it helps people consider whether that's true or not. Sometimes, um, they might not think it's true at the time that you said it, but um, a few weeks later, with more experience, they go, oh yeah, I remember you said that a few weeks ago, and I didn't think it was like that, but since this happened, or I've been thinking about it more, actually, I do see, I, I start, I'm starting to see the truth in that. So there is definitely a, a value to having an outside perspective of someone that's, you know, got experience in looking for these things. And, um, knows where to spot them. Hey, everybody, it's time once again to thank the official coffee of the Tom Woods Show, Press House Coffee, the coffee that made me into a coffee drinker. Now, with Press House, you can get the familiar diner-style coffee that you love, and it'll be the best you ever tasted. But, oh my gosh, the flavors. And it's not like the usual so-called flavored coffee where it's coffee with some awful chemical sprayed on it. No, these are actual coffees blended in such a way that they approximate these amazing flavors. And you know my favorites are blueberry muffin and especially key lime pie. Unbelievable. Their head roaster personally sources each bean and creates a unique roasting profile to highlight its unique flavors. And for the adventurous and undecided alike, Press House offers a really neat build-your-own-bundle feature, and that lets you try any four coffees for just $20. Better yet, you can even subscribe to any coffee so a new bag is waiting at your doorstep right when you're about to run out every single month. We'll get 20% off your first order and a chance to win a year of free coffee by using promo code WOODS at PressHouseCoffee.com. That's 20% off your first order and a chance to win a year of free coffee when you use promo code WOODS at checkout at PressHouseCoffee.com. This may seem like a weird question, but from a point of view of somebody who does the work you do, 
Can you say something about libertarians? Like, for example, it seems like it's a particular kind of person that's willing to take a position that is so unusual for most people that, and that is likely to get them ostracized or kept at arm's length or viewed with suspicion. seems like that must be a particular kind of person. And I, I wonder if there's, you have any insight about that. Well, I've got a couple of hypotheses and I'm not really sure if they're how true they are or not, but I'd be interested in getting feedback on these. I think there's a couple of things that might create a propensity towards libertarianism. One thing that often seems to be a prerequisite for having unorthodox ideas is, and and these might not necessarily be libertarian ideas, some people who are like orthodox Marxists or are really into conspiracy theories or anything like that might fall into this category, is that if you have really close-knit peer group early on in life, I think this might often hamper people's ability to think outside of the box because you learn what like, you know, Nathaniel Brandon and Ayn Rand called social metaphysics, which is you have to have the same views as the society does in order to, but see if you didn't have that early on. I'm not saying everyone that's a libertarian had these circumstances. I'm thinking it is often the case. You don't learn that social metaphysics. You don't feel like, oh, if I have an idea that my friends don't have, I'm going to get made fun of. Because you're being made fun of anyway, or you're being ostracized anyway. So you can think whatever you want. If you first make your close-knit peer group a little bit later in life, I know it's true of me and it's true of a lot of libertarians I've spoken to. Your need to have the same views as everyone else is not so tightly formed. So, you know, you can have friends and completely disagree with them without being afraid that they're going to abandon you. That's a brilliant insight. And by the way, I think that helps to account, at least in part, for why, frankly, we have so many nerds. Yeah, Because nerds are not super popular, right? So they don't have to worry about what their friends think of their views. And you can become really popular later, but the personality is already formed around not having to think the same as everyone else. You know, you could become very, very sociable later on. So, yeah, I definitely, you know, when you have an area of expertise, you start to see the whole world through it, you know, whether it's psychology or economics, history, you know, there's certain, so you kind of look for these patterns. I remember meeting someone who said she studied both sociology and anthropology and how both of them had completely different precepts, which surprised me. And, you know, the she'd get into arguments in the anthropology department because she had different precepts from them. So it's, it's kind of like that. The other thing that I think might be true for some people is having, having a really intrusive parent. And some, sometimes people are skeptical about these kinds of theories and things like that. But our first experience of authority is our parents. And if someone has, um, and, and then I think in a lot of times we project our relationship to authority with our parents onto other authority figures, and that, that could be the state as well. I think some people, when they had an intrusive parent, they then see, they're just like, the idea of, will you just leave me alone, gets um, cemented into their bones, and they start looking at the world through the lens of, would you just leave me alone? So they're like my tentative hypotheses of the kinds of life, early formative life experiences that might create a propensity towards being open to libertarian ideas. But um, 
as I say, there are hypotheses. I'd like more research to be done before I accepted them dogmatically. But I think that's as plausible a theory as any. Now, of course, if you're in that position, you could potentially just as readily be sucked into another heterodox ideology. And there you may just be dealing with contingent factors of your life that tend to direct you into libertarianism or, say, Marxism. Yeah, that's right as well. So the way that this manifests can change from person to person and what ideas you think of as anti-authoritarian. And it's always interesting to see how the same set of circumstances works its way differently on different people. Like the example we had before is quite a good one. If, if someone is like, if someone's criticized a lot, for example, they can become very careful about criticism or they can just ingest that as normal and become like a very critical person. And, and you often see that with all sorts of different circumstances in, in our youth where we can go to one polar extreme or the other. So, you know, sometimes people are fond of saying, well, if you put people through that education system where they're bossed around all day, every day for 11 to 13, then, you know, some people are going to come out that on the other end very servile. And other people are going to want to be the authority that that pushes people around. In fact, one of the books that really opened my eyes and probably set me on the road to becoming a therapist was called Summer Hell by A.S. Neal, which um, was a book about a very heterodox school in the south of England where they gave their children a lot of freedom. I see the budding libertarian in me, even though I think I was still on the left at the time. And how they dealt with misbehavior and things like that through relating to the kids and things like that. And I think when I read that book, I was like, I knew it. It was almost like I had a, a instinct my whole life that there was something spooky or something going wrong with the socialization or enculturation of children. And, and that along with another great book, which I think everyone should read, whether you've got kids or not, even just to help you understand your own childhood and the ways that you weren't. And nurtured or spoken to is called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. I think these books, along with pushing me towards psychology as a field, also affected my political views in a sense because I saw society through the lens of the formative years of children. You know, we have, again, now so we run so quickly out of time here. I want to ask you, I would love to follow up on the children thing. That's a whole other conversation. But I really want to ask you, are there any insights that you might want to share with just the average you know, listener? Because you know, you're doing this all the time. And I bet you come across, you know, we talked about patterns, people who you know, fail to see this, that, or the other thing about their own lives. Or, is there any insight or anything people should be thinking about with regard to their own mental health that you just wish more people were doing or knew about? Well, there's one skill that I learned from being a therapist that I learned to get very good at, which I, I wish everyone knew because I feel like it would make the world a, a much more compassionate place, but people would feel more connected to the people around them and anyone can learn it and it will improve your relationships and hopefully your relationship with yourself as well. And that's the simple skill of when someone comes to you with some information, especially when they're feeling emotional about it, to paraphrase it in your own words and say, so do you think that X because Y? Instead of like jumping in with advice or just telling them what you think on that topic, 
you'll see amazing things happen if you get good at this skill. That's um, people really connect with you. They'll become a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I hate that friend. They always come to me with advice, uh, with with problems, and they never take my advice. And that's because a lot of time people just want to be understood, and are a really great way to help the people around you without actually. One of the things I realized some time into my career as a therapist was even if I had no theoretical knowledge at all, no skill or facility at anything, I could still be helpful to people just by demonstrating understanding. So the next time your partner comes in and they're, they're, uh, another great thing is to put a uh, emotion word in it. So are you feeling angry because X, Y, Z? Or it sounds like you're upset about that because, and even if you get the emotion wrong, they'll say, no, it's not that I'm sad about that. It's actually, I'm frustrated because X, Y, Z. And you'll find that it still helps them. I think that's the one thing that, I, I, you know, if, if I could teach the world one social skill, one soft skill, it would be that to, before you come in with your advice or before you share your knowledge, make sure the other person feels they're really understood by you. And that will make them more receptive to whatever you have to say on the topic. It'll prime them to be ready to receive your feedback. So I guess that's the biggest insight from being a therapist that I guess I'd like to share with the world. Now let's end with you giving people a way to find out more about this side of Anthony Samaroff. I think we probably have a different link for every episode of Anthony <laughs> Samaroff week for heaven's sake. Yeah, I suggest you check out the Be Yourself and Love It podcast. It's a cool self-help podcast. It, it varies from sometimes I do very short solo shows that are 10, 15 minutes long. Other times it's me interviewing experts and other times it's me being interviewed on other people's shows. And I really always aim to be very practical, not too much waffle. I really like breaking down concepts into actionable steps because there's there's far too much philosophizing in the personal development field and people just really need tools, things that they can actually apply. So I've always tried to make everything I talk about on the podcast something that you can actually put into practice to make your life better. So the Be Yourself and Love It podcast, how do people find that? Of course, I'll link to it on the show notes page, but what's the direct way? Yeah, you can find it on iTunes or whatever your podcast catcher is. Or if you don't use one, then it's on SoundCloud. You can find it. And then do you have a website for that? Oh, yeah. Or does so, it redirect to your... I guess it would go soundcloud.com forward slash Be Yourself oh, and oh, Love It. You don't have Be Yourself and Love It as a website? Oh, yeah. I have beyourselfandloveit.com, but that's for my therapy services. I see. I see. Well, look, I accidentally gave you an ad. Well, there <laughs> right you there. go. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if people want to message me and talk to me, I, I love hearing from people on Facebook. Usually that's where people connect with me. So you can, if, if it's something that you think you might be interested in experiencing, definitely send me a little message. We can talk about it and you can find out if it's for you or not. Excellent. Okay. So I'll have all this information up on the show notes page. And uh, Anthony, thanks again. Thank you so much. Okay, folks, that's going to do it for today. We're right in the middle of the academic year. And if you just can't take any more COVID stuff interfering in your kid's education, it's just getting to be too crazy. It's not too late to join the Ron Paul curriculum. January is probably, after the summer, the most common month for people to join the program because they've just 
They've gotten through one full semester and they just say, sorry, not doing this anymore. And they come on over to ronpaulhomeschool.com. Make sure you use the, the link ronpaulhomeschool.com because then you get bonuses from me that you can't get from anybody else. And you're going to want those bonuses when you check them out at ronpaulhomeschool.com. The Ron Paul curriculum is self-taught, video-based. You get to keep your sanity because 90% of the work you'd normally have to do as a homeschool parent, we do for you. So check that out at ronpaulhomeschool.com and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.